There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But, but one, of, one of the things that made Spotlight so powerful is the knowledge that the newspaper industry today is in big trouble. Papers have been closing and downsizing for years, and that affects all of us. Even if you only get your news from Facebook, Google, Twitter, or Ariana Huffington's block quote junction and book excerpt clearinghouse, <laughs> those places are often just repackaging the work of newspapers, and it is not just websites. Watch how often TV news ends up citing print sources. According to the Chicago Tribune. According to the Detroit Free Press. According to the San Francisco Chronicle. According to the Times-Picayune. The Boston Globe. The Orlando Sentinel. The Philadelphia Inquirer. The Pittsburgh Tribune Review. The Detroit News. And the Houston Chronicle reports. The Los Angeles Times reports. The Oklahoman reports. The Hartford Current reports. The Salt Lake Tribune reports. It's pretty obvious. Without newspapers around to cite, TV news would just be Wolf Blitzer endlessly batting a ball of yarn around. <laughs> and, and it is not just news outlets. Stupid shows like ours lean heavily on local papers. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Last week on the podcast, Lane and I talked to old friends about our days together at the Virginian Pilot. We were all in New Orleans recently at the Conference of the Society for Features Journalism. Shout out right here to Jim Haig, who just stepped down after a year as SFJ president and the guy who invited us to join his merry band in the Big Easy. Love you, Jim. The keynote address at the conference was delivered by Mark Lorando, editor and vice president of content for the NOLA Media Group the umbrella over what you might commonly think of as the Times-Picayune. Mark gave such an inspiring talk that Lane and I asked him if if he would speechify a little on the podcast, so we went to his office in mid-September. Feels like a time in our industry where we could all use a lift. So sit back and let Mark make you feel better about what's ahead. Today's topic, changing the narrative. So we've we've got to change the narrative about journalism in America. The story that's being told is that newspapers are dying. Um, the story that's being told is that the internet has ruined journalism, um, that, um, that serious journalism, um, is declining along with the size of newsrooms. That is so removed from the reality of what I'm experiencing in my newsroom every day. And, um, we've got to do a better job of telling people what's actually happening. Um, we're allowing this story about what is occurring on the business side of journalism to define the narrative about what's happening to journalism. Um, And they're two very different stories. Um, The reality is, as a storyteller, that um, this is the golden age of journalism. I think when we look back at this period, um, we're going to realize what an extraordinary moment this was no limitations whatsoever on reporters' ability to tell stories. Um, Video, audio, 
written word, um, social media, um, in, engagement in real time with the people reading your stories. Um, it's an extraordinary moment. You know, newspaper reporters and editors spend their days and nights framing stories, deciding uh, based on the facts they've gathered, based on their observations, what the story really is. And it turns out that, you know, we're much better at framing other people's stories than our own. Um, because everything that we are talking about publicly, about what's happening in journalism, um, is a negative. Mm -hmm. um, everything that we're talking about relates to the disruption of the business model. We're not talking about the quality uh, of the journalism that we're producing, the extraordinary um, ability that we have to tell stories in different ways. Um, and we're sending a message, I think, um, to the public that, um, that we're in disarray. Um, of course they don't believe in us. Why would they believe us? Why would they believe in us if we don't believe in ourselves? And um, we're just, the worst part of it is that the story we're telling is not accurate. The business is extremely disrupted, mm -hmm. clearly. The business model is broken. No, no business model, no sustainable business model for local journalism exists at this point. But what that's led to on the news gathering side is a period of experimentation, innovation, creativity, uh, unlike anything that we've ever seen in my career. Um, there's extraordinary work being done. The people who continue to work in our newsrooms are so committed and so passionate and so mission driven because they're the only ones left. Right. Right? So if you're still in it, you're in it. And the work that they're doing, the work that we're doing, um, in my opinion, um, against some of the greatest odds that we've ever faced, um, I think, um, as an industry, is something that we should be celebrating. Um, and that we, we, need to, we need to tell people that although the business model is broken, our audience has never been larger. We're, we reach more people than we've ever reached at any time in our history. We can engage them more deeply in more ways in real time. Um, and as long as we continue to focus on that and on good storytelling um, and on impact, that a business will follow that at some point. We have to believe that. It was so nice to hear you say that, though, because I think I, I think we were all feeling the same way, right? Because you could feel the room. The room was kind of like, yeah, we don't talk. That's not the way we talk. We we do. We like we just take all the bad headlines and the layoffs here and the layoffs there and the who's you know what's happening. And it feels like it just I don't know, like it's such a weight. And and anyway, that was what was so nice about sitting there and hearing you talk in that tone, which was like, okay, wait, let, let's tell the complete picture at least. Uh, the, let's, the, let's not give it the. I know. had a I had a woman interview for a uh, a news editing job a few years ago. And she had come in from San Francisco. She was relocating with her husband. And she's like, you know, I want to get into journalism in New Orleans, but, you know, what I've been reading about what's happening. She said, I expected to come in and find the most depressed newsroom in America. And she said, actually, this is one of the most optimistic, enthusiastic newsrooms that I have been in in, in a really long time. And she said, I, 
she said people would be stunned to know that and I said yeah it's just not something that um, people assume that we're all you know doom and gloom because all that they read are stories about um, ad or uh, ad revenue declines print circulation declines layoffs consolidation news deserts right. and all those things are real and they're troubling and we've got to figure them out um, but for journalists in this era who embrace new technology, who embrace the freedom to tell stories in different ways, it's exhilarating. It's absolutely exhilarating. I think it's also hard though sometimes in our own narrative to, to even though we're still here doing great stuff, to be real enthusiastic about it because there's a survivor guilt, right? There's a little bit of mm -hmm. like, oh, so many of our yeah. good colleagues have had been forced out of the business. I'm still here cheering us on. It feels a little like guilty in a way, you know. But I, I, I and I, I liked your point. I've made the same point too that I feel like the people who have left the business, willing, willingly or not, um, most a lot of the times are the ones who are our biggest champions. Are the ones who are like they don't want their layoff, their sacrifice, um, to be in vain. I mean, they want and they're not sitting there hoping that we don't succeed. But, but yeah, and, and the people that are left are the ones that really, really want to do it, right? Yeah, right. Like, no matter what conditions right. are thrown up there, like they're still so passionate about. There's it. nobody left in the business on the fence. You've, <laughs> you've made your right, piece, right, right, right. <laughs> right. You know what? The the first few years after we really made a strong move to focus digitally um, and reduce print frequency, um, and it was a very volatile period. And I would tell people just focus on doing good work and everything else will take care of itself. Well, um, that was a lie. It wasn't a lie, but it certainly wasn't true. Um, you can focus on good work and things still might not work out because the business is still uh, completely upside down right now. The volatility is there. So I have a new message, you know, for my staff now, which is that, you know, if you choose to stay in journalism, you're choosing to live with uncertainty, you're choosing to um, tolerate um, volatility, you're choosing to um, work in an environment where you throw everything that you have into it every day and you know every day that you could come in and find out that um, you, you can't do it anymore and that that's, and that you decide that what you do is important enough and rewarding enough that it's worth it. So you just have to make your peace with that. Don't ask me if there are going to be layoffs. Right. I'm not going to answer that question because if I answer it one way today, the answer might be different tomorrow. The right. business changes so fast. Right. The economics turn so quickly. It's staggering how quickly um, or, or how, how fragile I think our um, you know the revenue picture is for local media companies. So. You just have to, you just got to roll with it. Like, we would talk a lot in the beginning in 2012 when we, again, first started really trying to change the culture in the newsroom. You know, we'd say we're trying to, to create a startup mentality, which sounded really cool. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, like we're, we're really, really innovative and experimental. And, but actually a startup, what a startup is, is a company that every day you come in and you have to actually fight to survive as a business. That's what a startup mentality is. But that you, you, you so completely believe in the venture that the, the trade-off is worth it, right? It's, it's a, 
it's a passion play. So, um, yeah. So that's. But but you what you said is very true. The survivor guilt is very true. Um, I think that, and in, in particular for, for particularly for me as somebody who has um, has had to manage a number of layoffs in the newsroom uh, over the past six years that. You know, f for me to then stand in front of a room or stand in front of a group of, of people um, or in, in front of an audience in New Orleans and say, um, there's never been a more exciting time to be a journalist, um, that feels a little insensitive. And the respect that I have for the people who've left, um, the number of friends, um, people that I love, that I work with um, side by side. Um, um, you know, you don't want to feel like or appear to be dancing on their graves. Absolutely. Right? right. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, so I think this drives a lot of the kind of uh, public negativity that you hear from other journalists. That in, a, in, a, in a weird sort of way, you're kind of respecting your colleagues who've lost their jobs by being angry for them. But I think the message it sends so, so that does a disservice to, you know, in two ways. One, it, it sends a message, I think, to the public that we're all just um, miserable. And doomed. And, right, mm -hmm. which, which is not true. And I think it sends a terrible message to young journalists about the business they're getting into. You know, yes, we owe it to our colleagues um, who've, who've lost jobs to, um, to be respectful. Uh, we also owe it to, to young journalists to give them, you know, everything that we've got, a passion, the opportunity. Um, and so I, I, I just, we're also entering a period, I think, as a business where we're going to have to start asking readers to support digital journalism as well. The hope that, mm -hmm. um, that all the print revenue could just be replaced by digital ad revenue, I think we all realize that that's not... It's, it's not going to work. Google and, and, and um, Facebook are taking a, you know, too big of a piece of that pie. We're going to have to ask readers to support our journalism online just as, just as they did in, in print for so many years. Um, so if we're going to make that ask, then I think we're going to have to show them that we're excited about the product that we're putting out there, right? Yeah, and we, we had a, a podcast with our interns a couple of weeks ago, and these, these young journalists were like, you, we owe it to our readers to tell them what we're doing now. How are, how are we turning this around? That we're how not we transparent enough and that we, and I mean, legacy newsrooms have never been very good about exactly. celebrating the work. I mean, aside from some big project here or there and, and championing that when it comes out, but in terms of what you're talking about, that's sort of the day-to-day -day and the, and also like, I, I think as part of this discussion, when I think about the young journalists who are coming into the business, knowing what they know, yeah, damn. I mean, they're fighters, yeah, right? They're, I mean, they're awesome. They're coming in. They're like, awesome. Coming in at a different time than it's, we all came in. And they yeah. still want to do this. And they still want to really do this. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> part of the story of what's happening in newsrooms. It's part of it's part of the golden age that I talk about. That we've created this this incredible dynamic mix of veteran, skilled, steeped in tradition journalists who have embraced this completely different way of working. And we've put them in a room together with these young, multifaceted, fired up, digital natives 
who are, have no emotional baggage about the way things used to be and how much better that was. They, all they see is promise and opportunity and, um, and you put those together in a newsroom and magic happens. It's extraordinary. Um, it, and and, and it, it's not an age thing, right? You know, people people just talk about, um, you know, you fired all the veterans and, um, and and you brought in a bunch of kids. So that assumes that, you know, any any young journalist is, um, you know, has no value. Um, and that all veteran journalists were, you know, very highly skilled. And we know that, you know, there are varying degrees of truth about both of those statements. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? So um, everybody in the room is all in. Right, and that's exciting. I think that we all know. We've if, if those of us who've worked in, in newsrooms for a long time know that there those work felt like in a lot of places jobs for life. Mm-hmm. And um, there were people who hit a you know there were plenty of people in the newsrooms who hit hit a point in their careers where you know they were kind of coasting. Um, and you had your you know it, it was just a different kind of vibe. Right. Um, it felt like you had tenure for some reason or yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So. This work nobody's is, coasting now. Nobody's coasting now. <laughs> this work is hard. This work is hard. Um, the newsrooms are small. Everybody has to do a lot of different things, and um, and you know we've got you know people who've been doing this for thirty years plus who are absolutely busting their asses every day and going live and, and uh, on Facebook and and you know getting right. in front of getting in front of cameras and sitting down and writing stories and. And getting up and doing events, and they're doing everything that we're asking them to do. They're being uh, incremental. They're being, you know, multimedia. And then you've got, um, you know, you've got them, you know, admiring, respecting, feeling this incredible kind of professional collegial bond with these really young people who come from just a very different moment, and um, it's exciting. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came up in the business? And I mean, so you were doing the kickoff for the Society for Features Journalism, and you obviously have a love for features journalism. I do. Um, so talk a little bit about that and why, you know, it felt like you were also still feeling like there is an opportunity for us to, to connect with people always to, to make that emotional. Yeah. You know. and, and maybe how, how has features journalism or the import of it changed in this kind of changing climate? Yeah. Well, you know, I have the I have the career path that no one should ever uh, attempt to duplicate. Um, <laughs> I um, I went to college um, for two weeks, dropped out theoretically for a semester to save some more money. Ended up getting a job at uh, the Picayune as a clerk in the TV department, which um, is still to even say that sounds completely ridiculous to me in 2018 but we had you know five full-time employees who wrote about television edited our own tv listings in-house i mean it was just uh, uh I, it's I, I can't even wrap my head around what i did for a living yeah so what, grandpa what, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly was that long ago 1981 that wasn't that wasn't that long ago so um, yeah, so you know, you get your foot in the door in a newsroom, and newsrooms were um, just incredible learning environments. When when I came into the business, we had you know 220 something 
employees and you know the the pace of work at a newspaper at that time was very predictable it it started very slowly early in the day and built up to this kind of crescendo later in the afternoon right before the um, um, the copy desk came in and then everything blew many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And the press has turned and it went silent and you started over again the next day. But in, there were moments in there where um, a lot of mentoring happened and a lot of learning happened. And for me, um, I, I learned journalism in a newsroom, um, both uh, from uh, editors and other writers taking me under their wing and explaining to me the craft, and then just from listening to what was happening around me and watching other people work. And it was, I tell interns here all the time, I said, you know, we're going to give you a lot to do, but. You're, the most you're going to learn, you're going to learn from just sitting in the room and paying attention and make sure you're in the room paying attention because things happen really quickly. There's not as much time for those kind of conversations, but there's still a lot that you can learn. So I was I was very embarrassed for, for um, you know, a great many years early in my career when people would talk about where they went to J school and I'd kind of try to slip out and find another conversation <laughs> to drop into. Um, and then I realized, you know, later in my career that it was the great blessing of my life that I was able to actually learn journalism in a newsroom. But but the first, so I went from a TV uh, listings clerk to a TV columnist um, at a very young age, at 21. I was given opportunities very early to just write, you know, some stories. They threw the kid a few stories and then they threw me a few more and they threw me a few more and the TV columnist left and they gave me the column, which again, completely ridiculous. Um, but I had it for, <laughs> for 16 years, um, then became uh, an assistant features editor and then was a features editor for 12 years when we transformed uh, uh, the company and really turned hard toward digital features was a little bit ahead of that, um, uh, that shift and so they gave me more responsibility, which included um, some oversight of news, became a managing editor of news, and then became editor in um, 2015. But, you know, fully 31 of my 37 years in the business were spent in features. So I have a great affinity for and appreciation of um, the work that features journalists do. Are you the only editor-in-chief in the country who came up through features? I have no, you know? you know, this is so funny. This, this this has been such a recurring theme of my conversations with people at or this conference. Or as a TV clerk. For sure. For sure, I think that. But. Um, I have no idea. It's You know, it's not, I mean, I can tell you that when, um, uh, when my predecessor, Jim Amos, told me that he wanted to make, a manage, make me a managing editor over news, I told him I, I thought he'd lost his freaking mind. And, um, you know, he, he said, why? He said, I said, I have, you know, I was never a cops reporter. I was never in City Hall. I, how am I going to lead that group of people? How are they going to regard me? And he said, they all regard you already as one of the 
um, finest journalists in the newsroom and that um, um, that what you do in features is exactly what we want every reporter in this room to do. That's that's journalism. That's reporting. Um, you know, an instinct for what makes a good story, um, um, an ability to communicate and relate to people. He said, there's a lot about news that you're going to have to learn, but you'll learn it. It's, um, that's what we all do. We, you know, we, we, we get a new beat and we learn it. So, um, so and, and, you know, I have, and yet still feel like every day I'm coming in here learning something new from the editors who work for me. But that's, that's kind of been my mindset from the first day I came here after dropping out of college, that I, I remain, I think, a student of my own newsroom. Um, these guys teach me so much every day, and I'm still like the intern sitting in the middle of the room trying to listen and, and pick up what I can. Um, but those, you know, that, that experience and features, um, I think, carries over really strongly, and I think Jim Amos recognize this when he gave me more responsibility that if, if we're going to continue to thrive as local journalism organizations right if local journalism is going to survive local media news media is going to survive i think that newsrooms are going to have to think more like features journalists and you know what i what i told the conference is something i feel really strongly about there's this there's this sense that Features departments are getting gutted disproportionately um, in newsrooms. And um, I think that's tied to an old definition of features. Features was entertainment, features was the arts, features was um, going way back, you know, the women's section, right? It was fashion, it was all this. All right, all of that stuff. And so. and so a lot of those beats have gone away as full-time beats in a newsroom. That is true, and that's true here as it, as it is in others. And so those, when you think of features sections, they've gotten smaller, and there are fewer of them in some newspapers. They're not seven days a week in some of the um, daily newspapers now. They might only have a feature section a few days a week. My argument is that features is not a department in, in 2018. Features is an approach to journalism. And it is an it's an approach that leads with the great story. It's a, it's an approach that looks for the emotional connection to the reader. It's an approach that values what people really care about um, as much as what we think they should care about. Um, you know, newspapers had uh, we had so many reporters. We had so many subscribers that we really had the luxury of just um, not having to be very selective about what we covered. And this, this, um, as 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 our newsrooms have gotten smaller, it's forced us to really decide. I mean, the hardest thing about the change is deciding what we're not going to cover anymore, and then what we are going to continue to cover and how we're going to cover that with the resources that we have. Right. So there's this feeling that. Every story that you tell has to matter now because your resources are so scarce. And that really forces you to, how do I make this story special? If we're going to cover this, this um, you know, education issue, this school board issue, um, let's, 
let's make sure that we can make the reader feel a connection to the people who are affected by that. That's a features approach, I think. We don't, like features never covered meetings. Features covered the people who were affected by what was decided at meetings. Well, actually, what we need to do on the new side is cover the people who are affected by the meetings, right? Mm -hmm. Are you coaching your people in that way? Are you, are you giving them that kind of like, like shift your mindset here? Like, you know? No, we talk about it all the time and it's just, it's the conversation is forced by, um, by the, the, the changes to our staffs. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that moment after every staff reduction where everybody sits around. I, I mean, every time that our staff has gotten smaller, and I can, I guarantee you, this is true in every newsroom in America. Every time staff gets smaller, somebody says, well, we, this is it. We can't get any, we can't get any smaller than this. And, and this is real. We're at the bone. Can't possibly get any smaller. And then, you know, you trip a little more out, you get a little smaller again, and then you say, all right, how are we going to do this? What are we going to cover? How are we going to split this beat up? Do we really need to keep covering this thing? Um, and can one person maybe cover that and something else? Um, and, and, and then the conversation each day in the news meeting is, do we send a reporter to that? Um, is that really worth the time when we've only got you know x, x number of reporters available I, I think we can do something more impactful over here we're going to let that go right so yeah so that's it that's does the it conversation does happens. yeah and I'm, I'm having this conversation with young reporters all the time that, that in some ways it affords you a freedom that we didn't used to have because we used to be the paper of record and we used to you know you'd cover everything and you oh you know every little every little uh, step of the way on whatever story you were doing, um, and now you don't have to do that. You can you can have some freedom to make some choices. Well, people have lots of other sources of breaking news too now. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I I don't know how you feel about like the features approach. I mean, I feel like something we can do as newspapers is offer people a lot more depth and breadth and context. You know, rather than just what happened at City Council last night. Right. You know, it, it's interesting when you think about the history of the kind of coverage that we used to do that we went to every meeting because that was the only way people were going to find out what happened at those meetings. Right. There are many, many ways that people can find out what happened at those meetings if, if they really want to, including watching, watching it on the, exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. right? So um, is, are we really serving the public um, and are we making the best use of the resources that we have by being at every meeting? Clearly not. Um, it, it's just as clear that things happen at meetings that we need to see and um, that are signals of problems that exist, that are there are signs of corruption, there are signs of dysfunction. Um, but it doesn't require us to be present for every minute of every public meeting. Um, we need to be better sourced so that we understand what's, what happens when we're not there. Um, and I think we just have to be a little bit more creative about, um, you know, how we um, keep track, particularly in the suburbs, um, uh, where a lot of coverage has been lost pretty much all across the country. But, you know, we did, so we've done a couple of enterprise series this summer that um, in the past would have been thought of as really sort of hard news, and, and the subjects are very, very much hard news subjects. Um, we were looking at the effects of trauma on the health of children growing up in really um, um, crime-plagued um, uh, neighborhood in New Orleans, the children of Central City. Um, we're currently uh, launched just this week a, a real deep dive into 
a total breakdown in the uh, mental health care system in Louisiana that sort of has its roots in budget cuts that Bobby Jindal made when he was governor um, uh, for two terms uh, uh, earlier this you know decade. If you read those stories, they read like incredibly powerful narrative features at their at their core. Um, those are, you know, incredibly involving human interest stories. Uh, we're finding people who, um, who who can really illustrate those issues. That's a that's a very features-driven approach. And and again, I think in the past. Um, you know, I'm not sure that we would we would have gone about it in in that exact way. I don't I don't know if my having been a features editor and my managing editor having having come up through features as well um, is something that leads us in that direction. Um, I don't think it's overt. We're not. We're, I guess to answer your earlier question, like 10 minutes ago before I started rambling, <laughs> I don't think we're really coaching people saying think more like feature reporters, right? I think what we're I think what we're saying is. You know, how do we make this story compelling? And I also think I, I'm, I'm not going to take credit for this. We have writers who are naturally drawn to the human stories and are um, are kind of there's a kind of natural um, affinity for that in the room. That's where we've I think probably developed some of our greatest strength. Well, there's a big difference between saying like children are affected by trauma in this bad neighborhood, and here's some mental health experts to talk about that versus listen to Johnny's story, right. come meet Johnny, you right. know, and how, how are readers responding? Do you feel like they connect more with these issues and agents yeah. of change when they can see faces and emotional context? And yeah, I mean, the outpouring has been pretty extraordinary and really gratifying. And, and it's not just an outpouring from people saying, um, you know, thank you for sharing this story. Um, we've got to do something for these children. I really hadn't considered this. Um, the impact on um, our institutions responding to those stories has been so swift that it's, um, um, I think it's pretty extraordinary. Um, the city council um, in New Orleans passed a resolution um, uh, earlier this month mandating that um, some local city agencies find funding to um, for trauma-informed teaching training for Orleans Parish Public Schools starting in 2019. Um, there's, a, there's a real movement afoot within the local um, education community to try to tackle this issue here. That was fast. Um, it was, um, I think it took us all a little bit by surprise. And I think it wouldn't have happened um, in an era when all that we were producing was um, a, a newspaper section on Sunday, a newspaper special section with with a bunch of stories about these kids. But we had the newspaper section with the stories about the kids that uh, was very powerful uh, print journalism. We also had an 18-minute documentary film that um, was incredibly powerful in a completely different way. Um, we had a social media campaign where we pulled out some of the pictures of these kids um, we did what we call social cards, where you pull some quotes from some of the experts explaining what this is, what's happening, and what, what needs to be done. Um, and we had a couple of events after uh, the fact 
that were pulled together by the United Way, screening the film on the big screen in front of a theater in Central City um, with a panel of people saying, what are we going to do? Um, a real call to action. And the combined power of those things, print, digital, social media, video, I mean, it's, um, it's unlike anything that we have been able to do at any point in my career. And you're reaching different audiences that way too, right? Right. I mean, I think there are people who will sit and read a 4,000-word feature, and we had more than one 4,000-word feature in that in that project. Um, but but they'll sit down for and watch a movie. Right. Right. So uh, one more question: uh, Are you hopeful? Oh, I am like. I am. You had to ask that. Had it to seem like he's hopeful. I just want to, you know, make sure we end on a hopeful. <laughs> Jane, Lane loves uh, Lane, Lane loves, loves hopeful. 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 Yes. Yeah, I mean, I I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever, none, that we're going to work our way through this transition, and that, that that's what this is. It's a transition, um, and that local journalism will survive. And that, you know, the only question that remains in, in my mind is how uh, large of a newsroom uh, the business will support um, and what the business model will ultimately be. Will it be part what, um, what we're able to support uh, commercially plus some, you know, is there some profit, nonprofit kind of hybrid? Is it, um, is, is it our digital subscriptions the the answer, um, what does that look like? I have no idea. Right. Um, I really don't. I, I, I have I have no doubt that we'll survive. And I, I think it's, um, as a, our audience continues to grow. Um, the quality of the journalism continues to grow. As, as newsrooms adjust, as they embrace some of these new ways of doing things, um, uh, you know, I think the value of what we do is becoming increasingly apparent. And I also think there's a conversation about journalism in America that um, is unlike anything that I've heard any time in, in my career. People are very curious about journalism. Um, I think it's the great irony of the Trump presidency that he has started a conversation about journalism that is, that is a really healthy one. And um, so, but we have to help ourselves a little bit more, right? Yeah. Journalists have to help that happen. We're going to have to allow ourselves to stand up and say, I'm excited about what we're doing. I'm excited about the future. I come into work every day, and, um, and I got a bunch of people around me who are passionate and committed and kicking ass, and we're doing this because we believe in it, and we're going to keep doing it, and um, because we care about these communities as much as, 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 the, as all, all of you do. National network uh, news organizations are going to be fine. The New York Times is going to be fine. WAPA is going to be fine. Wall Street Journal is going to be fine. But in these communities, in New Orleans, in Charlotte, in Kansas City, in Tampa Bay, you know, who's going to support that journalism? That's what we're fighting to save. And we need to be excited about that fight. We need to support each other. We need to you know, yes, be respectful, yes, mourn the, the, the colleagues that we love who've lost their jobs, but let's also, um, you know, let's allow ourselves to, to be excited about our future. Good note.
All right. Okay. If you have a question for Lane about any of her stories or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.